The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Happy Friday and welcome to another edition of the State House Takeout. Uh, joining us this Friday, we're going to have uh, an interview with Secretary of State William Galvin, the state's chief elections overseer, because uh, we are, well, primary day is next Tuesday, but we are in the middle of the primary elections uh, with voting ongoing through the mail and early voting at various locations around the state. Uh, before we get to the state secretary, though, we've got our own Chris Lasinski of the State House News Service, who's been writing an awful lot about the primary races this cycle. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. I am delighted to be joining you. Oh, wonderful. We are delighted to have you. Uh, and and your visage uh, beamed into our newsroom over Zoom. Uh, well, welcome back in some form or fashion to, uh, to the newsroom, Chris. Um, so... Uh, and, and I should mention that uh, you've covered some incredible primaries. You, you covered that uh, third congressional district primary when you were at the Lowell Sun, uh, which was... Yeah, yeah, the recount 10-way. That was, that was a fun one. Yeah. Uh, and there's a similar-sized um, primary uh, this time around in the fourth congressional district. Yep, that's right. We've got seven candidates in there now. Uh, for a while, it looked like there was going to be nine, but two of them have dropped out, thrown their support behind Jesse Murmel. Seven candidates in a primary still is quite a large race. And, you know, crucially, this is a large enough field where we could see the winner emerge with 30% of the vote, maybe even 25% of the vote, if this gets split into a couple of different directions. So the margins here are going to be, are very likely going to be pretty narrow. Um, you know, two years ago, we had a recount in the third congressional district. That's obviously hard to predict, but it's, it's not off the table given uh, how close this one could turn out. Yeah. What, what did the margin end up being in the third uh, that, that led to that recount? It was something something like 150 votes out of the, the tens of thousands that were submitted. I'm embarrassing myself not recalling the exact number off the top of my head, but uh, two years in news time is, is, is a lot. So those details have been replaced with, uh, with other things that have happened since then. It's an eternity, really. Um, so... Uh... <laughs> Chris, you've been you've been writing for us a, a good deal of a, a, a primary preview um, uh, that's going to be going out to State House News Service subscribers on Monday morning, uh, really capturing a lot of the uh, tight races or issues to watch. Um, so as as you've been drafting up that that uh, preview piece, uh, what are some of the uh, really close races? I know that there's a for example, four to five uh, open seats that are, for all intents and purposes, going to be decided in the primary. Yeah, I'm going to correct you, actually. It's seven House seats are, are basically going to be decided in the, the primary. We've got 15 seats all in the House, none in the Senate, where incumbent lawmakers aren't running for, for re-election. So we're basically guaranteed next session to have at least 15 new faces in the 200-member legislature. Um, you know, Seven of those 15 only have Democrats running the cycle, all four seats currently held by Democrats, no Republicans, no independents formally on the ballot in the 
November. So barring a successful write-in campaign, which is not impossible, but highly unlikely, uh, Tuesday's election will decide the outcomes of these, these races. Um, three of them are in Suffolk County for uh, Representative Angelo Scotia's district, Rosalie Vincent's district, and Dan Cullinane's district. We've got a couple others uh, in Middlesex County, one in Western Mass, one in Norfolk. So uh, really, that's going to be one of the top things, particularly for us to watch as you know, dedicated uh, coverers of Beacon Hill to see who we're going to have to welcome into the fold and who we're going to have to get to know over the next few months. Right, exactly. A lot of new faces uh, coming up. Um... Uh, might be kind of like the last freshman class, I think was one of the biggest freshman classes they've had in a long time heading into this session. Uh, they even had to move the location of their bullpen. The, uh, the bullpen is the, uh, the office where all the freshmen start out before they get their new office assignments. Um, Chris, how many, how many incumbents are going to face challenges on Tuesday? Uh, I, I know we've particularly seen um, a number of races where uh, progressive candidates are, are challenging uh, longer tenured uh, representatives. We've got 18 incumbent lawmakers who are going to be facing primaries in the House and another five in the Senate. So that brings us to 23 total. Um, something key to watch that I really am going to be looking out for is a good number of those who are facing challenges are, are pretty significant power players in the legislature that we've currently got. Uh, Twelve across the two are chairs of one of the joint committees. Some are smaller committees that meet less frequently. But for instance, we've got the Housing Committee co chair. Uh, Kevin Honan is facing a primary from his left, from Jordan Meehan out in that Alston-Brighton district. Uh, Senator Jalen, who chairs two committees, is also facing a primary election. Uh, Paul Donato, the second assistant majority leader, who we see all the time, is really the one presiding over virtually every single informal session in the House, is facing a primary. Um, you know, it's not all that common for incumbents on Beacon Hill to lose, but two years ago, we saw Jeff Sanchez and Byron Rushing both get ejected from office in Democratic primaries in the Boston area. So uh, if there is going to be a significant change to the leadership hierarchy, to sort of the, the constellation of who is in power here, it's almost certainly going to come during the primary because Democrats have super majorities in both chambers. So these, I think, are really some of the ones to watch on the, uh, the state legislative side. Sure, sure. And uh, you mentioned Representative Honan from Alston uh, and Brighton. Uh, he's actually set to be the new dean of the House if he's reelected with the retirement of uh, Angelo Scotia, uh, the longest, uh, longest tenured uh, member of the, uh, the state House. Uh, Chris, another interesting race that uh, we've had our eyes on is Representative Dave Nangle in your old neck of the woods up in, uh, up in Lowell. Um, and, and that'll be an interesting one to, to watch, Chris, because he's got, uh, I think it's uh, two, uh, two challengers in the Democratic primary, right? And this all follows his federal indictment, uh, which was, what, er earlier this year? Again, feels like an eternity in, in the span of a news cycle, uh, but um, interesting to watch uh, uh, him emerge from the federal courthouse and, and now running for reelection. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to put a timestamp on that, that was mid-February that he was arrested and charged with about two dozen federal charges for allegedly misusing campaign funds on personal expenses, filing false tax returns, submitting false information to a bank to acquire loans, uh, all basically pre-COVID in Massachusetts. So there's a reason it feels like quite an eternity ago. But yeah, so so really crucially, I, I went back and looked through the timeline here, and at the time of his, his arrest, Dave Mengel had had not pulled papers to run for re-election, so decided after that point that he would seek another term. Neither of the challengers, Lisa Arnold and Vanna Howard up in Lowell, had pulled papers before his arrest. Both seemed to be spurred into action by the developments around his legal case. So we're really curious to see how that's going to play out with voters. Um, you know, Representative Dangle has been in for about a dozen terms. He's a, a long-term member of the House. He's very well known in Lowell. He leads both of his opponents in fundraising, so he's got plenty of resources. The question is just whether the you know federal indictment is going to be enough to, to convince voters before the case is even resolved. Keep in mind, you know, he's been charged, but we haven't gotten to any sort of a trial process. He's pled not guilty in this. So um, it really remains to be seen. Right. And, and of course, uh, trials have been held up. <laughs> the, the court system has been yeah. held up in a sense by, uh, by COVID. Um, have you gotten the sense or have you seen that either of his primary opponents are, are, are talking about this issue or, or, or using it against him? A little bit, you know, especially when they launched their campaigns, both seemed to point pretty directly to it, point toward restoring faith and transparency in the, the position, um, kind of painting themselves as a, a, a trustworthy, law-abiding contrast to the allegedly law-breaking incumbent, who, again, could be, be proven not guilty through all this, has pled not guilty. Um, so it certainly does seem to be at least one issue in this race. But as with every race we've got going on right now, uh, COVID has kind of upended the process. So we haven't really seen them in public quite as much as we might in a, an otherwise normal election cycle. And Chris, hanging over all of this is... Uh one of the most recent bursts of legislating on Beacon Hill, uh, policing reform and, and racial justice legislation. And depending on your district and which way it uh, skews more conservative or more progressive, um, the, uh, the votes that the incumbents took uh, in some of these contested primaries, the votes really uh, could become an issue. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, um, that police reform bill, which we should note is, is still holed up in conference committee several weeks after it cleared the chambers. Uh, that was one of the closest votes that that I've certainly seen in my time covering. And I think you would agree, um, which just goes to show you that, that lawmakers were were you know, pretty divided on this. And for those who want to make a campaign issue out of this, the, the material is there. And Chris, as, as we've mentioned, one of the interesting or peculiar things with this year's cycle is that there are around a million ballots out there in the mail uh, out of the state's 4.5 million registered voters, um, and then a lot of folks voting early, and, and a good number are still going to be voting on primary day. But uh, as a reporter who covers these races, uh, who covers state government, um, uh, what are you going to be doing on primary night? I mean, normally we would be out, uh, we would be out at the uh, election night parties, uh, waiting to see the reaction from supporters uh, and candidates. Um, what are you going to be doing? 
yeah, I'll probably be at my desk in my apartment drinking coffee at 11 p.m. and eating cold pizza waiting for those results to come in because that's really all that we can do at this point. I mean, there's not going to be any election parties when there's a, a ban on any gatherings over 25 people. Um, and, you know, we'll be looking to see as many results as we can, but I, I wonder how many races will even be called by election night simply because of the fact that so many ballots are in the mail. We don't know for sure if those are going to get there in time, if clerks are going to have any sort of trouble processing this. This is all really uncharted territory, um, you know, as evidenced by the fact that Secretary Galvin encouraged voters to drop off their mail-in ballots in person rather than stick them into, you know, uh, the postal service. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll try and recreate as much of our process in our own homes as we can, but it's, it's, it's going to be way, way different than it ever has been. For sure. And we'll hear what Secretary Galvin has to say about that coming up. He'll be talking with the news services, Chris Van Buskirk. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for joining us today. As you said, I know you're a busy man, so taking some time out of your day to talk to us is, is always very nice of you. Um, I do want to know, it's been a very unusual year with the pandemic. What's it been like trying to manage and oversee this unusual election cycle during 2020? Well, in particular, this particular election, we did have the presidential primary. Fortunately, early enough in March, that was not adversely affected by the pandemic at the time. And that was very successful. This is, by contrast, totally different. I mean, most of the ballots, it would appear, are going to be by mail or by other means, uh, but it's uncertain on that. But it's led to a lot of moving parts. Uh, the communities that are helping us and enormously, that is their responsibility, of course, to provide the principal election activity. But I think it's, it's put a great deal of stress on many of them in terms of their support and their resources. Uh, to make it easier for voters, the administrative work has to be done at the local level. And it's been, for many of the larger communities where there are other responsibilities as well in the clerk's offices, uh, it's, it's been demanding. And, and what are these local clerks telling you now that the ballot application deadline has passed, you know, people are already voting, are they, are they handling um, the volume of mail-in ballots well? Well, the, the volume of, well, the issue has been to get the ballot out, which they've done, uh, we, and we've had a significant amount coming back as well, which is good. Uh, it's the same story that we said all along, that if you put in your application earlier, for instance, you took the application that we mailed out in July and promptly sent it back, most likely you long ago received your ballot, and if you've acted promptly and sent it back, it's been received, and voters can track that on my website. So that part is working. But we've had a lot of late applicants. Uh, we've had a lot of people. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people who got the application in the mail, particularly independent voters, really were much more focused on the November election. And they may have hit all elections this year. And as a result, are getting a primary ballot, but not quite sure why, uh, even if they wrote that they wanted one for a particular party. Uh, so, you know, I think. Uh, a significant number of these ballots may not come back. They may simply be people who are far more interested in the November election and thought they just had to check that off and did and get received a ballot and may not re may not return it. But there's a fair amount of questions from those people about the process and the procedure. Right. And, and what do you say to the people who are worried that mail-in ballots won't arrive at town halls by Tuesday and then won't be counted? 
Well, if they've mailed it and they track it, they can track it through the website, as I say. We, we, as far back as late, earlier this week, uh, really late last weekend, when we opened up early in person, we suggested to people to take it to the early voting site. Uh, that's not to say we can, you can mail it, and many did, and have successfully mailed it since that. But, you know, we did recognize over a week ago that the Postal Service is not that quick, that there's been issues that we raised, so we've told people that. Uh, if they have, the issue is continue to track and see if the ballot's been received. If it has not been received, then they can still vote in person. Right. The SJC decision came down yesterday, um, uh, upheld the September 1 deadline. Right. I take it you're, you're pleased with the outcome? Yes, I am. It was the right decision, and the court, I think I grasped the fact that to extend the deadline, as was been requested by the plaintiff, uh, it would have cost other voters, namely overseas and military voters, their opportunity to vote. The, the schedule was very, is very tight. I mean, that's the point that has to be emphasized here. The general election is now 60-odd days away. So to get all of this done and to get ballots out to people around the world, and it's not just military personnel, it's primarily military personnel, but many expatriates around the world. When we researched this question last fall, we discovered there were votes, ballots being sent to China, uh, ballots being sent to places all over the world from Massachusetts in a presidential election, and that's certainly the case. Cambridge, for instance, is an example, has many people that are mailing ballots out to who are not military personnel. So to extend 10 days to people to take advantage of one aspect of their voting options uh, would cost these other people the possibility they wouldn't get their ballot on time. And obviously we couldn't do that. And it would be violative of federal law, which, as you know, the United States government weighed in on, which I think was significant. Right. Uh, do you think a sizable number of race outcomes won't be known on election night? And how are you how are you planning for that knowing that you know you want to get an election ballot for the general elections together well we're hoping that the results will be complete on election night in the sense that we'll have the ballots there we certainly know that after 8 p.m now on election night there'll be no ballots that aren't in, in the possession of the clerks to be counted so the question is the process we have gone over the process extensively with the clerks we are allowing them to pre-process the ballots. They won't be counted until that night, but they're pre-processing the return envelopes, which will help uh, in the administrative process. Some will centrally tabulate. That's an option under the statute. So you get the precinct totals, and then you get the totals being centrally tabulated and add them together. There'll surely be some issues. The volume here in terms of paper is enormous, but I don't think it'll prohibit a final result from being established sometime within the close, shortly after the close of polls. What that means varies from place to place. It varies where there's issues uh, about transmission of ballots and how they're transmitted to the polls, because any ballot received on election day has to go to the polls. It cannot be centrally tabulated. So there'll be issues like that. But all in all, I, I have no reason to believe that it's going to take very much longer than it normally would. There will be the issue, obviously, of close races. If there's close races, that remains to be seen. Right. Hillary Clinton uh, says Joe Biden shouldn't concede the election under any circumstances on election night. What do you think of that? I have no idea what she's talking about, uh, in the sense that I don't know what context she made that statement. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen in other jurisdictions. I have enough to do dealing with this jurisdiction. <laughs> do, you, do you think... Uh, state reps should, or state senators in, in close races 
should concede on election. Well, I'm not giving advice to individuals. They, they are, they're not going to take any from me anyways. Right. Uh, it, it, we obviously will endeavor to have accurate results available as early as possible. And in close races, people have to make decisions based upon what their, their advisors and legal counsel, if they have it, say. That's all we can do. Right. I, I, what, what, are you, do you have any idea of, of total turnout? You know, not at this time. It's premature to determine that. We have to look and see what's coming in, and you know, we'll analyze it over the weekend and see where we're at. Do you, do you have any idea of how many people have already voted? Well, we, it's ongoing. I, it's, 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 it changes every hour, so it's impossible for me to say, you know, this is the number. It's not that a fixed number. It, today, many communities are having early voting in person, right. so it's an ongoing process. It's impossible to say what the total number will be. Right. And... How, how are you casting your vote this year? You I'm gonna... voting in person on Tuesday, which is what I always do. Right. In part because I do do that, and I always have enjoyed doing that. Right. But secondly, I will go to the polls, which will be very safe, but I want to see them for myself and how they're set up, because I'm anticipating, as much as we've tried to prepare for this election in September, what we're going to confront in November is even much greater. We're going to have a much bigger turnout Obviously, even if a significantly increased number of persons take advantage of the opportunity to vote by mail in November, we're still going to have many, many people showing up to vote in person in November. That's just the nature of it. It's going to be a very large turnout. The last two presidential elections, we've had over three million ballots cast. So even though four years ago a million of those were cast as early votes, we still had two million people show up on Election Day. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a lot of people showing up, and I want to see the polls uh, myself to see how they're operating, how they're set up. We think we've made some good choices. We want to make sure that if there's better improvements to be made before November, we can take advantage of the experience of next week. You said 60-odd days until the generals. Talk to me about some of the preparations that you need to make when the primaries end, you know, the races are completed. What preparations do you make? Well, we have to go to the ballot, print the ballot. The first thing we have to do is print the ballot. And, you know, many of our ballots, because of federal law, are required to be translated into various languages. We have to put the names on the ballot that are elected or nominated in the process. We have to get the ballots out. We have to get the ballots distributed. Uh, the Yorokawa ballots, which is the overseas, has to be available to be distributed by the 19th of September. The goal will be, of course, to have ballots for the general public, that is to say, non-foreign uh, voters, people who are domestic voters in Massachusetts here, uh, sometime available as early as possible in October. To get that done, to get the proof done, to get the ballots printed, millions of ballots printed, to get them returned, distributed to local clerks, that's going to take a lot of time. Right. Finally, outside of this Beacon Hill biome, you know, I know much of your work, a lot of your work, maybe all of your work is focused on elections. Are there any other headlines, news stories that you've been reading in the past week or two that have Oh, I'm concerned about the census. That's the other ongoing issue we have. As you know, I'm the liaison for the census. Uh, the Bureau is seemingly going to end the census early, which is unfortunate, uh, and I think deliberate on their part to try to shortchange many states. Um, I know there's litigation ongoing. We've had communication with the Attorney General about it. I hope the litigation is successful. I believe the litigation has actually been brought by other jurisdictions, but I believe there was a hearing on it just the other day. Uh, I want to see the census completed accurately and completely and make sure we're not shortchanged. That's my greatest concern right now, in addition to the election, because that's ongoing right now. Speaking of the census, what uh, 
how are you combating an undercount? I know it, maybe it was a, a week ago when you had the press conference out in the, mm-hmm. in the West Garden that you said, was it one-third of households still need to be counted in the state? It's, got, it's improved because they're doing door-to-door. But still, I mean, we have many communities. The communities which are most at risk are the hardest to count because they're uh, densely populated, older cities, high number of immigrant, non-native-born populations, language issues. I was just with the mayor in the Bedford, who's been working very hard on this himself. Uh, we were just discussing how we're going to, what we're going to do in the Bedford. And we've got other groups we're trying to bring into the process, taking advantage of other opportunities presented by the Bureau. We can't count anybody. The Bureau has to actually count them. But they've offered us some uh, census employees who will go out with handheld computers to try to count at gatherings uh, where they might find people who they've been unable to find. We know there's door-to-door effort ongoing. so. We're focusing on the communities, I'm focusing on the communities that have been historically hard to count, New Bedford, Lawrence, and statistically this time out have been hard to count, Worcester. Uh, those are all communities we've had ongoing state efforts in right now. And what, what makes those communities in particular, when I mean, you bring up Worcester, what makes Worcester hard to count? Well, I don't know why it's hard this time. than it, it, it seems harder this time than it was last time. We've tried to address the college student issue in Worcester because they don't forget, many of them left early last year, so we're trying to recapture them. We've got an ongoing effort with the Bureau to do that using college records. And then in addition to that, we're trying to work with indigenous community groups, uh, church groups and others in Worcester to make sure we know where in the city those population undercounts are. And we're trying to find those populations and get them to respond to the census. Okay. All right. Okay. That's all that. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, and thank you to the secretary for his time. Thank you to Chris Van Buskirk. And thanks to you, the audience, for joining us for another Statehouse Takeout. On Monday morning, keep your eyes peeled for the news service's primary preview. That'll be coming out bright and early on Monday morning. And keep your eyes on statehousenews.com on primary day and throughout the week for the very latest updates, statehousenews.com. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.